Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the executive director of AABP. And today we have a guest host of our podcast from our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, Dr. Emma Bratton. Emma, go ahead. Thanks, Fred. Um, so as Fred mentioned, I'm a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, I am currently uh, a American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science and Technology Policy Fellow at uh, the United States Agency for International Development, working in their Center for Agriculture-Led Growth. Um, and today we are joined by uh, Dr. Navaratam Partheban, or Dr. Thebe. Um, Dr. Thebe, would you like to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Thank you, Emma. Um, so my name's Navratnam Partheban, and I'm a clinical farm vet based in the southeast of the UK in England, um, and I'm 100% farm animal. Um, so mainly uh, beef, but um, some dairy, uh, sheep and, and camelids. Great. So um, first question is, if you could actually go into a little bit more about your background, um, where you've worked, and where you work now. Okay, so I, um, I'm originally from Scotland, and uh, I, I qualified in Scotland, um, and I then worked in Wales. So my whole career, I've worked in pharma medicine. So I started off in clinical practice, and I've worked in Wales and England and Scotland. Um, and I started off in mixed farm, so beef, dairy, pigs, sheep. Um, and then the path took me down to dairy. And so I, I eventually ended up in 100% dairy cattle practices. Um, and after a few years of that as well, I then work, went into industry, so working in the pharmaceutical sector, working in education and in the livestock nutrition sector. And then I've recently taken a step back into clinical practice um, where I'm working in, in a new team in, in the southeast. Great. So, um, so I know you've also um, worked in a lot of um, DEI-related initiatives. So I wanted to know if you could articulate why is DEI important in veterinary medicine, and more specifically, why is it important in bovine and food animal medicine? So DEI, I think, is it's personally important to me because it's something that I experience, um, you know, throughout throughout my life. So being a, a minority ethnic person um, in a sector that's very undiverse, especially with ethnicity, it, it was something that I'd sort of gone through in my even before vet school. When applying to vet school, I didn't have any role models. I didn't have any inspiration of people that looked like me or sounded like me in the veterinary profession when I was at vet school I never had any of that either you know again in my year group of 100 people there'd only be two people of color and so and then and then when I started working especially in farm animal practice which is out of all the different parts of the the veterinary sector is the least diverse I think probably almost on par with equine medicine um again I never really got to meet or talk to or look up to anybody that looks like me um, but also there's a lot of discrimination and there's a lot of uh, you know, macro and microaggressions and, and things that went on. And so after a few years, you know, and once, once my professional 
um, career was stable, once I was confident in what I was doing as a veterinarian, I actually thought, thought well, actually, what about my, my emotional side, my mental health? And, and also, what about the next generation? How are we going to inspire them? Because, you know, again, you know, if all these things are lacking, then people won't want to come and join our sector. So the first thing was, you know, if I needed help, where do I go? There wasn't anything. So I wanted to create networks and, and groups to create that support network. And the other thing is then how do we increase the education and promote um, and celebrate difference? So when I when I started talking about it in 2013, 2014, there was nothing in the UK profession uh, to do with colour or race. Um, but now, you know, there's lots of things that have, have, have grown. And I think also there's been a lot of intersectional um, intersectionality about it. So we've had a lot of people, you know, thinking about other parts of their identity and how maybe they've been marginalised because of that. And um, I think that's where it's grown. And I think it's important because, again, we need to, you know, we need to reflect society because, again, we're dealing with animals, which is also part of society. So, you know, if, if, if our profession, like, for example, in the UK, the number of people of colour in the veterinary profession is 3%, yet in the UK population, it's 14%. And 14%, that's bigger than the population of Wales and, Scot and Scotland put together. Um, so that's a huge amount of people in this country, but they're not represented in veterinary medicine. And also, so morally, we need more uh, diversity in the veterinary profession, but also if we want more innovation, more ideas, you know, how are we going to get that if everyone who comes here has come from the same experience, the same backgrounds, they're going to have the same ideas. What we need is people with different ideas and different ways of thinking. Um, and, and especially in food and food and farming, because, again, you know, it's, it's important that our, this sector grows in knowledge and ideas. If it's going to be competitive, if it's going to be efficient, sustainable. Um, and, and again, we need the cultural significance. Again, everyone has to eat. And are we producing the food in a culturally appropriate way for everyone to eat it? Um, you know, for example, lamb in the UK um, Nearly 25%, 30% of all sheep meat and lamb meat in this country is eaten by the Muslim population. So if you think an industry that doesn't uh, embrace, you know, Islam and understand about Islam, then that's 30% of the whole sector that can be affected. So, again, we need people like that in the sector to help share their knowledge, ideas and, and bring that cultural awareness to the sector as well. Um, and then again, role modelling. So again, you know, when people are, are there and, and younger people are looking up and, and thinking about where they want to work or where they want to diversify into, if they can see people like them working in roles um, that might interest them, then that might be the inspiration they need to, to join this sector. I think it's important for the sustainability and the future of the sector as well. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, you brought up a lot of really good points. And I guess one thing that I'm curious if you can talk about more um, that you mentioned was your personal experiences in private practice. Um, and I know that you you said just now that you kind of moved back into private practice, but you had moved out of private practice previously. So if you could talk about those experiences in private practice and whether they impacted and whether or how they impacted your decision to move more to industry in the pharmaceutical sector yeah so when i when i'm like i mentioned earlier i think when you when you're a young person the ultimate aim is to achieve your dreams and um, it doesn't matter how you get there 
you will you will put up with a lot just to achieve your dreams. And and my dream was to be a vet and 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 no one was going to stop me and any barrier put in front of me was just something to jump over. So, you know, you would you would so I would put up with the the, the banter, which was is another code word for, you know, uh, racism and, and 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 those sort of things. You know, the you know, a lot of lot of um vets vet students had come from very small closed backgrounds like you know where they they hadn't met diversity before they'd gone to private schools and had met and only been around people like them had come from small villages or towns um so you know when they they said things like that a i was on my own at vet school and b i just wanted to be a vet you know i didn't have time to fight for my own safety but for for anything else so Going through vet school, you 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 absorb it, you absorb it, and you just try and pass your exams and get through vet school. And then when you're in in as a vet, and 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 you and everyone will be aware of this. I think it's even steeper learning curve. You know, vet school is a lot easier than your first year in in practice because that's when you actually learn. And I think, and again, you know, I was working in the valleys in Wales, in the middle of nowhere, literally, and uh, a lot of people had never seen a person of colour in their whole life. You know, uh, but it was all about just getting through that first year, just learning on the job, becoming a vet and trying to, you know, just be the best I can be. And so, you know, I, I did that and I did that. But what I didn't realise was that, you know, every comment, every um, hurdle I had to jump, every time I had to absorb it and move on, took a little bit out of my out of me. But I didn't realise that. And, and, when, and the more you're sort of, uh, the more you're confident about your professional life, the more you start to realise that it's maybe taking an effect in, on your health. Um, so, you know, and, and after a few years, after six, seven years of in practice, I um, I had an incident where a farmer wouldn't have me because of the colour of my skin um, on his farm and he wanted my boss. And there was nothing, no other reason why he didn't want me apart from that. And even, you know, that that's what came up as an as excuse and the thing was, though, my boss chose the farmer over me. And um, at that point, I thought, no, this is wrong. And now I can't take it when actually it's nothing to do with anything that I can control. You know, I was born this way. But yet this is a barrier that actually somebody who should be protecting me, who should be a leader is not. And that, those are my bosses. So I went to the I went to the, um, the, 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 the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons who are meant to be the profession who are meant to be our regulators. I went to the British Veterinary Association, who are meant to be our association. I went to the BDS, who are our Defence Council. I went to um, VetLife, who are our mental health charity. I went to all these different organisations and asked them to help me, and nobody could because they didn't know what to do because nobody had come to them with these problems and had, had begged them for help. And what I realised was there was nothing in place to support people like me facing these issues um, so, uh, you know, and after I tried and tried with my bosses to get over it, what I thought was, do I move on to another practice and start again or what do I do? And it was a, a friend of mine who said, well, why don't you try industry? And if you hate it, go back into clinical practice. But, you know, you might like it. There are lots of benefits. Uh, you're with a big group of people. You get to learn more things. And, you know, I think coming out of vet school, your only dream is to work in clinical practice. You don't imagine anything else. But I, I decided, you know what? I'm going to take that punt. I'm just going to go into go into industry because, again, I love learning. I want to know more. And who knows? You know, like she said, the worst thing that can happen is I, I can leave and come back to clinical practice. What, what I did is when I went into industry, 
I suddenly saw that there were proper structures in place. There were proper reporting mechanisms in place. There were proper HR departments that you could go to. There were diversity of people. You know, just you, you, after the first time I saw people of colour, you know, in the office. Um, and then, and I think that was something that I thought, well, actually, this is still the veterinary industry sector, but there is those things that I didn't have in clinical practice. Um, so actually, once I was out of clinical practice, it gave me that strength to try and fight for change within the profession. So when I did, when I, when I went to education, again, I had those elements, you know, a proper structure, reporting mechanisms a few more people of colour, and then I had that in nutrition a little bit as well. Though, again, when I talk about diversity, I'm still talking about a slightly more diverse um, workplace than the clinical practice, but nothing like society. Um, and what really got me back into clinical practice was one thing. When I, I wasn't even looking for a clinical job, and um, I was actually looking for another industry job, and I wanted to talk to this vet I knew about who would be my future boss at this new place. And she said to me, come and just have a chat and find out. I want to find out more about, you know, what you're looking for. We started chatting and all she talked about was her inclusivity and her practice and her vets. And she just said, look, the team is the most important thing for me. Being, being, looking after my team, the vets feeling like they feel included, the vets feeling like anything happened to them that I would support them. And, and, and then all these values she just started talking about. And we were meant to talk for an hour. And for the first 50 minutes, she was talking about values, talking about teamwork, talking about inclusivity. And only the last 10 minutes did she go, well, actually, these are what our clients are like. This is what you get as part of a package. And, and uh, this is what the, you know, what sort of pay you could expect if you wanted to work with us. Just the last 10 minutes, nine, 50 minutes of it was all about team values, culture and inclusivity. And for me, that's what I value. You know, over everything else, I really value working in a place where I want to go to work and I want to belong. And I think that's what's how I evolved as a person as well, because my initial wants were to be the best cattle vet I could be. You know, I looked up with all these vets, with all these letters after their name, and I thought that's what the best vets in the country are. But actually what I realised was the best vets in this country are vets that are happy, that are part of a really good team and that, you know, just enjoy going to work to be with the people. And and I think that's why um, I've come back to clinical practice. And, and to be honest, I'm in probably one of the most inclusive uh, teams I've ever seen and, and, and witnessed. And I've traveled all over the country as a technical vet. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that um, from, you know, your whole journey from vet school until now. Um, and that's, I think, a really powerful story about how you came back to private practice because um, of having that inclusive workplace environment. So that leads a little into the next question, because um, I know you're doing research with the um, Nuffield Farming Scholarship and um, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Mental Health Research Grant about barriers to entry for um, people of color into veterinary medicine and agriculture. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit um, to that research. Sure. So I'm, I think, so I've done, I think part of, um, part of my journey in DE&I is to learn more because again, I, I think it is a journey when it comes to diversity and inclusion. There's, there's, there is a start point. There isn't an end point. I think we're always constantly learning. And um, so the first thing that we 
that we did in 2021 uh, was we applied for a, a grant from Mind Matters, which is a veterinary mental health charity. And we wanted to look about the impact of racism uh, on, men on the mental health of individuals employed in the veterinary sector. So that include vets, vet nurses, lecturers, students, everybody there. And, and what we wanted to do was look at, you know, how much racism was in the, in, the, in the sector, what it looked like, and actually how did it impact those individuals. So it was exclusively for people of colour to answer. It was the largest survey in this country on racism and the first major sur um, survey of, on, on, on racism. And actually, it was with a colleague who had approached me because she was teaching another vet school and she had a, a, a student come up to her complaining about racism and she didn't know how to how to deal with it. And I said, look, this is how you deal with this case, but let's do something together and let's see about your journey as well. So actually, it's been a, a journey for her to see, you know, how 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 racism impacts people. Um, and that's been that's been fascinating because again, it's, it, we 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 worked with a psychologist as well to how how to put those emotions and those feelings into a, a tangible way so that we can understand it and we can express it because again, language is quite difficult and a lot of people don't know how to express how they feel when they face discrimination. So that's been a really powerful thing about this survey. Uh, and, and we also asked participants to give examples of how they would what what sort of solutions they would have. So this um, this survey is 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 currently being submitted for publication, and we're hoping that next month or the month after we will hear back and and find out what sort of edits we need, and hopefully it will be published hopefully before the end of this year, if not very early next year. Um, and uh, along with that, there's um, in the UK we have something called the Nuffield Farming Trust, and what they do is they award scholarships for people who want to improve or increase the knowledge or or the um, ideas within British agriculture, but it's the travelling uh, scholarships so you have to go abroad and, and, and study. So my idea was, how do we encourage and support people of colour in agriculture? And when I mean agriculture, I mean all the all the allied sectors as well. So veterinary medicine, farming, uh, uh, it can be um, grassland management, the arable sector, anybody, but around Arab agriculture. So what I did there is I, I visited uh, the I did two visits. I visited Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia and Louisiana, because as states, they've got the highest percentage of minority farmers in the US. And I also visited Texas because it's got the highest number of minority farmers in the US. I also visited those states because I've got a high percentage of uh, minority people. Uh, people of colour uh, as in, in the population. So I wanted to learn about um, what, what sort of things the US are doing to support those people, encourage those people. So I visited um, different schools like Tuskegee University, um, Mississippi, Mississippi State University, Texas State University. Um, and I visited ranches and I visited growers and I visited, I learned a little bit about the army. And I, visited, I, I talked to some Marines. I learned about some of the sport and the way that sport was was divided and i think the biggest thing that i i learned was that you know actually the the solutions aren't new you know again some of the big, big uh, barriers that i found with both my survey and with this nuffield is that you know first of all is access and opportunity you know where do you know if, if you don't have a family member who's a vet or you don't live next to a farm 
You know, how are you going to get access? What about owning animals? If you live in a flat, if you live if you live in a city, are you more likely to have pets or not? You know, the next thing is financial. So can you afford to go out and see these things, go out and see farms, go out and see zoos? You know, financially, this could also be a barrier. And also, if you don't know about it, for example, in the UK, we have this thing where the countryside is quite a um a scary thing for a lot of people of colour. So a lot of people of colour don't go into the countryside because they don't know, you know, they feel like it's going to be discriminatory, it's a bit scary. So again, there's those barriers. And then the thing is like role models. Again, when we pick up a magazine, we watch TV, we see the same faces, you know, um, representing agriculture or far or farming or veterinary. And again, that doesn't inspire children because I, I read in the US and, and even the UK, you know, at six, seven years old, you know, a lot of children will will actually be open to pretty much any sort of profession. But if they don't see those things and they don't have that access, then, you know, later on, they're going to lose that enthusiasm and pick things that, you know, they can see themselves in or their parents can see themselves in. So I think, you know, the, the barriers are are, are, are are them. But what my survey and what my Nuffield did is reaffirmed that they are the barriers. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's really great that you got to, you know, come to the U.S. as part of that research as well. Um, so a follow-up question, and I know you said the research is coming out soon, but I was wondering if you could share a bit more about sort of what those solutions um, have come to be sort of how can people of color be more supported and encouraged in the field of agriculture and veterinary medicine sure so when i think about how do we support people of color i think there's sort of three stages to it so there's the pre-veterinary the pre-university stage we've got to think about children so you know you've got to think about well why won't children actually apply for the course in the first place so you know things like um, open days, um, things like how do we take children and give them the opportunity to experience it? So summer schools um, or, you know, sending out role models to their schools, you know, look at their books they're reading, the storybooks. Have they got diverse role models in their storybooks? Are they seeing that, you know, out, are they seeing um, people like um, them coming into school and talking about their professions um, getting children to grow their own food and grow things and see that as well so touching it themselves seeing it themselves I think that's really important so when you think about pre-vet school I think it's about inspiring them and supporting that inspiration um, but also it's about you know careers advisors being knowing that, that you know when a child says they want to do this having the knowledge to advise a child correctly so again you know we in, in the UK for example um, you know, 50% of children on free school meals um, are children of colour, you know, 50%. That's, uh, you know, over-representation. So, again, you know, financially, how are you going to support these children getting into vet school? Are there funds? Are there grants for these children? Um, and then once they get into vet school, um, we've got to think about, well, OK, they're going to go into an environment where maybe they were part of the majority or maybe they went to very diverse schools. And then they're going to go into an environment where they are going to be on their own almost. They're not going to see anybody like themselves. Um, how do we support children like that? You know, because, again, if we get them into vet schools, one thing, but we've got to keep them in vet school. So we've got to form support groups. We've got to try and celebrate them. So, you know, they've got to feel like they can share who they are. 
whether it's their culture, their religion, their experiences, their background. So we've got to find support groups. We've got to make those support groups. We've also got to think about how do we support those children uh, if they have got issues? You know, where do they go? Who, who's going to support them? So mentors and finding the right mentors for them and the right processes in the universities to support those children when they're studying. But also we've got to think about the curriculum. Does the curriculum reflect them in any way? Is there any part of the curriculum that they can associate with? So again, when, when we were teaching farming, when I, was, I used to teach at an agricultural university, and again, all the farming was based on the UK, Australia, New Zealand and America, US, North America. So again, you know, and we were talking about very Western techniques and Western farming, and there was no, no talk about you know, indigenous farming, African farming, Asian farming, and it wasn't, and there was no ever stories or information from the view of those people. It was more from a Western person looking down at those sort of farming methods. So again, you know, how do we change the the, the curriculum to allow people to feel like they're part of that curriculum as well and identify with it? And then I think is once we once they've qualified as a vet or they're working in industry. How do we look after those people? So again, are there support groups, support mechanisms for them? Are the are the um, organisations in the sector um, celebrating difference? You know, are we celebrating Black History Month, Hispanic Month, um, uh, LGBTQ plus month? Uh, you know, are we celebrating? Are we celebrating difference? Can people see difference? Are people seeing their sector celebrating their difference? Are we also creating those affinity groups that people can belong to? Are we creating that conversation there where we're giving that education about difference to everyone else to bring people in? You know, our conferences, what other sort of talks are going on at the conferences? Is it inclusive for everyone else? So I think when it comes to diversity and inclusion, you know, when, when we got feedback from our racism survey, for example, that's the sort of thing that people were saying, you know, depending on what stage they were. If there were students that were talking more about what was happening in university and when they were practising vets, then again, they were talking about those sort of things. But again, I think it's three different levels. and It's about tackling each level individually, but thinking about it as the person who's impacted rather than just saying, oh, we've got that in place and that should be fine. It's about seeing is that, is that process or that action actually going to have an impact? Yeah, great. Um, I really love how you broke that down into those three kind of stages. So um, in addition to everything you've already talked about, you are also involved in a number of organizations that do work in rural areas and agricultural communities kind of more generally, um, like the County Trust and the Oxford Farming Conference. So can you talk a little bit about those organizations um, and why that work is important to you? And also, um, what do you envision your role in these organizations as a person of color and as a veterinarian? Okay. Um, so, yes. So I, I, I think it's, uh, being, being part of the, the, the community and the agriculture community is really important for me. And if I can have influence in different ways or if I can see an organization that's doing something that I really believe in, then I always want to be part of it. So I'll talk a little bit about the Country Trust first. So the Country Trust are uh, an organization and what they do is they take children about seven years old, eight years old, and they take them, they, 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 they target schools where 50 percent 
or more are on free school meals, so the poorest children or a large number of children are special educational needs or disabilities. And we take those children and we give them a farm experience um, and a food experience. So what I really believe in is, you know, I think we need children to be connected to their food. But it's really easy to target children that have those opportunities anyway, children that probably live next to a farm, children that come from really wealthy backgrounds. You know, again, that's easy. But these children are really left behind. So there's a lot of refugee children that are part of this because, again, they're on benefits. They'll be on free school meals. Um, you know, children with spe special educational needs, because of that extra work, a lot of charities will just leave them behind. But, you know, this charity really believes in it. And what they do is they work with the, those schools. So they work with those teachers and they have farmer hosts and they have coordinators as part of the charities. So the coordinator will talk to the teacher, will talk to the farmer, will we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that health and safety and all those things are, are, are set up. We'll make sure the farmer really knows how, what needs to be sort of shared. And then we'll work with the teacher to make sure the teacher's safe, the teacher's got everything right, and the, the school's happy for these children to go onto farm. Um, the other thing is that the parents are also involved. So again, you know, sometimes we find that maybe the parents could be a barrier for their children not getting into a sector. But again, with this way, the parents are fully involved. The parents can follow the the the, the videos or the pictures that the teachers will send out throughout the visit, and the children therefore, and a lot of these children have never seen any more than a metre by metre piece of grass in the whole life. They live in high rise blocks in the middle of a city. They, you know, they'll be, sometimes they don't even get breakfast. They'll, they can't afford it. And um, they'll go to this farm and they'll see grass for the first time. They'll see a cow for the first, they'll hear a moo for the first time. They'll see milk, you know, fresh milk in a bucket, which, you know, they don't, they, they, they wouldn't connect milk coming from a cow into a, into a bottle. So, you know, they get to do all these things, but they get to touch wheat and they get to make bread with that wheat. And um, so that's what I really value about this charity. And so hence why I'm a, I'm a trustee for this charity. And what I bring to it is, is a lot of these children are minority ethnic children, are, are children of colour. Yet none of the trustees are people of colour. None of the um, coordinators are people of colour. So, again, they're trying to work with children um, and they're trying to imagine how the how the children are but they they don't have that personal experience you know some of my family came into the uk as refugees you know might they fleeing a war i know about the, how refugees cope in this country and the struggles but i also know as being an ethnic minority how i didn't get that inspiration or what i needed for inspiration so what i'm trying to do with a charity is try to support them encourage them try and show them maybe how we can include more people into the, into the leadership roles because i think our charity needs more leadership roles i think the type of children that we're working with, for me, is having, you know, giving that is, is a huge impact. Because even these children walk away never working in agriculture or farming or veterinary, at least they've had that experience and they can, you know, and, and even if it inspires one child out of 100, then I think it's definitely worth it. So that's the Country Trust and, and it's a totally unique charity. There's nothing else like it. There are other charities working with farm education, but if you look at the schools that they target, they're you know, they're pretty good schools anyway. You know, they don't need the extra help. But the schools that um, the Country Trust target are schools that are left behind. So coastal towns and inner city towns are the, are the big ones that we go for. Um, the other uh, organisation I work in is the Oxford Farming Conference, which is a, a totally different type of um, organisation. 
So the Oxford Farming Conference, they have a conference every year. It's a very famous conference. It's probably the most influential, prestigious and largest farming conference in the UK. Um, and it's it's set at Oxford University. So we, we host at Oxford University and we invite some of the most prestigious people in this country. So we invite the farming minister for the UK, the secretary of state in the UK, Princess Anne comes. We invite... Um, you know, some of the biggest companies that the CEOs of some of the biggest companies to share their um, ideas. We invite um, big thinkers, um, revolutionists in, in, in agriculture um, and some of the big companies and supermarkets and such. Like. And so it's basically a, a big a conference. So we have the top farmers, the top um, people from the different sectors, um, and they share their thoughts, their ideas and the policies and the changes coming ahead. Um, so sometimes the, the government will announce new policies at this conference, which is then um, rolled out throughout the year. Um, so, again, what I felt was being part of this, if I could make a difference and I could bring some of what my values and beliefs into this conference, then that would be an example for the whole sector. So I, I applied to be a, a director and I was, I was voted in as a director last year. So this is my first year as a director. We have a three year directorship where in the third year we come up with the whole conference um, and there's two other directors with me, so three directors a year. So I'm the first um, male person of colour ever to be a director. Last year was the first time that two women of colour uh, were, were both directors and were chairs for the whole conference. So, you know, I felt it's a good time to come. Um, and we've also launched something called the Breaking Barriers Scholarship, which Today, we selected our final candidate, and it's something that I'm leading on. Um, and we're giving five people of colour the opportunity to be part of the Oxford Farming Conference, but to have a big pre-conference programme where I'll take them out to farms. We have some mentoring groups. We have some workshops. Um, and that's part of a bigger scholarship programme that is, is sponsored by McDonald's UK and Ireland. Um, but again, there's nothing else in this in the UK like it. So I'm hoping that through this Oxford Farming Conference, you know, the, the, the leaders in the sector are going to see it and hopefully they're going to take it on and hopefully copy it, which, you know, would be fantastic. Um, but it's, it's a good way to really get that message out there and, and, and try and cause some changes in our sector. Wow. Yes, you are definitely busy. Both the Country Trust and the Oxford Farming Conference sound like really exciting opportunities. Um, so... Uh, you also work with the uh, Diversity and Inclusion Working Group for the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about what that working group is working on and kind of if you have any you know, knowledge to share with the AABP uh, DEI committee. No problem. So the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons is our... Is, is our profession, is our regulatory body. So they, they regulate our profession. Um, and so, you know, they 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 create the, the, the changes in our profession. Um, they accredit practices, they can accredit universities, um, and they try and maintain practice standards. So it's 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 a very formal organization. You know, with my work with diversity and inclusion, um, we had our first black president of the RCVS only last year. Um, and we've got an all-female leadership team for the first time in its uh, in its history. So there has been has been changes within the within the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. But what they felt as as an organisation, they were behind the times. You know, 
we talk about diversity and inclusion and needed in the profession and yet the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons is still part of the problem they still reflect the issues that we talk about so they decided that you know what they needed to do was create a working group they invited us the British Veterinary Ethnicity and Diversity Society the British Veterinary LGBTQ Plus Society and they invited all the different organizations so the British Veterinary Association the Students Association the uh, Universities Association and, and, and the Veterinary Nurse Association they invited a few other people as well and the whole point was was that we meet once every um, quarter um, and we try and talk about, you know, each organisation talks about what they're doing and then we try and talk about how do we, as a regulatory body, how can they make change? What can they do to to show to showcase diversity and inclusion and also try and create a buzz about, you know, how important it should be? Um, so we, you know, we uh, talked about, so we created a, a, a five-year plan uh, and, and that took some a while, to, you know, on how we're going to work with a five-year plan. And so because the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons has a number of different task groups, what we try to do is work with them. So think about clinical practice. How can the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons have an impact on clinical practice to improve diversity and inclusion? How can the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, with its role on, in the universities and accreditation, have a role in diversity and inclusion? How can the college, as its as an organisation, look internally and think about diversity and inclusion um so we, we did that so um we uh so we talk about where the barriers are we try and talk about how we change things they published this um, five-year plan which is on their website then they they try and create um discussion groups to try and you know increase the voice and understand more about diversity and inclusion as well so for example, they um, invited all the different vet schools to sit around a table and got students from each of the vet schools, students of colour, to talk about their own experiences and their own solutions to the diversity issue, um, the lack of diversity in, in, in the in the universities. So they tried to so the RCBS tried to host that and allow the organisations to do that uh, on on uh, with, with with the RCBS chairing it. Um, so it, I think. With sometimes with these organisations, the problem is things are very slow. Things are very slow, and because it's a regulatory body, there's a lot of rules and regulations that they have to follow. So they can't just make a change overnight. They can't just say, "Okay, yes, we can do that." They have to get approval from different boards and different ways of doing it. So sometimes it is difficult. I so I think it's nice that these organisations, this for example, this organisation does have the intention of wanting change, but I think that its own systems internally slow it down quite a lot whereas there are other organizations that can be a lot quicker at trying to make change like the british veterinary association who because they're an association they have a different remit in the veterinary profession but then they can also produce different things that might be able to promote diversity and inclusion for example they wrote the Di a good workplace guide which included a large section on diversity and inclusion within a good workplace which then the royal college of veterinary surgeons can then promote so the DIG group, the uh, diversity and inclusion group, um, is, is a good concept, but I think that um, for for real change and quick change, it's not the way to. It, it, it won't. It won't be through that. I don't think. Okay, got it. Thanks for yeah sharing more about how that working group operates. So um, earlier you spoke about you know you traveled here to the U.S. Um, and spoke with folks in the agricultural sector here. 
um, went to some universities. So I was wondering if you can sort of share what you think we in the United States and Canada can learn from some of the um, initiatives you spoke about in the UK um, when it relates to DEI. And also, what have you learned um, from some of our initiatives um, relating to DEI? Um, I think so. So the, the big thing for me was, you know, I just I didn't really know a lot about the US and race and ethnicity, um, to be honest. And so I, I, and all we in the UK, we only see snippets. We only see what's on the news. And what we've learned really now, I think hopefully everyone's learned that what you see on the news isn't reality a lot of the time. It's a very biased way of looking at things. So I wanted to go and learn for myself. So actually. When I came to the US, I initially wanted to learn about your history. Um, so I, when I went down to Alabama um, and Mississippi, I learned about, you know, slavery. I learned about, um, uh, the, you know, about segregation. I learned about discrimination. I learned about immigration. I learned about, um, you know, the, 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 the different the different type, the different populations, indigenous populations, Hispanic population, black population, you know, even uh, Asian, South Asian population, East Asian populations in the US and the dynamics. And so for me, a lot of it was learning, learning, learning. You know, I, I visited as many museums as I could there. I talked to a lot of people about it. Um, and, and the interesting thing was that Britain was a cause of a lot of the problems. And I think um, and, and I think this is something that in the UK we, we don't talk a lot about. So the UK controlled one quarter of the world. The UK enforced power on one quarter of the world to benefit itself. You know, we as a country are so small, yet we have so much power in the world. And it's because we had an empire. But then if you look at a lot of American history, it was a British who, who started it, uh, along with the other colonizers, the Spanish and and the French and the other people who came in. But through colonisation, we created division to support, to, to maintain power. So when in the UK, when we talk about America, we always think, no, that's different. You know, racism is different in the US. Um, their, their issues are very different to UK issues. When I was in the US, what I learned was actually, no, our histories are so connected and our issues are so connected. And actually, we need to stop talking about you know, you are different, we are different. We need to think about, well, actually, you know, the, the problems are the same and the problems there then impact the problems there and vice versa, you know, whichever way around you want to look at it. So, you know, so, so for me, it was a massive learning curve about that. And then that made me think, well, okay, when we think about solutions, we need to understand the problems um, and, and, and where the problems came from and how the problems were created because you can't break something down unless you know how it was created. And it's all about power. And, and, and if it's about power, then actually uh, the problems in both countries are exactly the same. And that's what I found. Both, both problems in both countries are actually the same. Um, OK, there might be slight differences. Yeah, I, I agree. And I completely agree with that. But I just think that, um, you know, the, the use of um, segregation and difference was used to maintain power, um, which, which, which happens even today. So people say it happened in the past, but and now we're very different and, you know, things are different. It's not really. It's just it's it's yeah. Things are different, but the power structures are still there. So in the U.S., um, so in the U, so in the in the U.S., I think for me, there's a lot more talking about it now. 
it's a lot more evident. You know, you see a lot more discussions about inequality and about discrimination, about the lack of integration and lack of diversity. You're seeing a lot more programs for marginalized communities. You know, you have uh, Latino Hispanic uh, Farmers Association. You know, you've got the Black Farmers Association. You've got the Asian, uh, East Asian Farmers Association. You have that in the veterinary medicine um, uh, 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 field as well. You've got the Hispanic uh, Veterinary Medical Association, Latinx um, Veterinary Medical Association. You've got the Black Medical Associ- uh, Veterinary Medicine Association. You've got all these these uh, affinity groups. That's brilliant. You know, so people can really try and find their identity. You know, break it down. We're talking more about it. There's bursaries, even in agriculture. You know, there's manners, uh, which is for minorities in agriculture uh, and and rural resources. Something I think that's how it is. But again, they they do so much work in the universities to encourage students and and, and uplift them as well. So there's a lot more talk about it. I think the division um, is still there, unfortunately, because again, even though that it still exists. When you look at the percentage of minorities in the profession or in farming, it's a similar to the UK. So um, but in the UK, what we're in the US, you're much better at talking about it. In the UK, we're not very good at talking about it. And I think that's a very, you know, that's a very um, big barrier. Um, we, 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 we try and hide that. Or we try and not talk about problems. And again, our, our history has been created in a way that we only learn a, a certain way of history. But I think. Over the last few years, when when Black Lives Matter has risen and and, and the way that the, the Black History Month has grown and we have a South Asian Heritage Month now, I think uh, the, the discussion about these things is becoming bigger and bigger. And veterinary medicine and agriculture is slowly embracing it and trying to understand its part in it all as well. Um, so the programmes, I think, in the US, so there are lots of programmes that are similar. There are like programmes in both countries for outreach. There are scholarships. There are so financially looking at it and role models. You know, we're trying to do more role modeling both in the UK and the US. I think the US, because you've got a bigger population, and even your minor, your minority population is a bigger population, it's just bigger. It's, it's just more visible. Whereas in the UK, we're still probably earlier on um, in, in the timeline of, of, of real change. Um, but because we're a smaller profession, maybe it can change quicker. Whereas the US is a much bigger country and, and with your state system, it's a little bit different. Whereas in the UK, you know, it's, it's all the same wherever you go. Um, but, you know, the, the things that I talked about earlier, you know, role modelling, financial outreach, access, it's the same for both countries. Um, and and again, it was interesting learning about sport and learning about, I know I went to a place where we were talk, I was talking to some Marines, ex-Marines of colour and they were talking about um, programs to get them into farming and agriculture and how they're being supported. We don't have any of that in the UK at the moment, but it was it was very interesting to see. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Um, we really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you can contribute to us talking more about um, DEI. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, no, I hope I hope to uh, one day come back again and, and learn more from your countries. Well, we would really appreciate that, and I want to thank both of you for this uh, great podcast. Uh, I think it's important for our members and our listeners to understand the perspectives of other people, and one of the things that I really uh, resonated with me was um, how our practice owners certainly need to make sure that we stand up for our associates, 
when they are discriminated against or when they feel uncomfortable. Uh, we want to retain people in bovine practice, and I would encourage our listeners to uh, evaluate uh, their policies and procedures in their practice to make sure we're uh, making inclusive environments. And also, let's remember that uh, what we experience is certainly not what everyone else experiences, and it's very hard to see the world through other eyes, and I would challenge each of us to continue to do that. I also want to remind our members that our keynote address from Dr. Bernard Hodges uh, is publicly available on our website. And one of the messages in his keynote is what Dr. Thebe talked about a bit today was making sure that we are exposing um, a uh, um, diverse uh, student population to veterinary medicine and specifically bovine and rural practice. And there are some links in the show notes as well as in Dr. Hodges's keynote address about an initiative he is doing where he is going into communities and bringing children from urban environments into rural communities so they can uh, uh, experience life on the farm. And I think that's important. And finally, uh, I want to encourage our members, uh, if you're interested in what Dr. Thebe has talked about today and his experiences as a practicing veterinarian in the UK, follow him on Twitter. I really like to see what you're doing on a day-to-day basis there and enjoy your stories there. So thank, uh, thank you both for uh, this podcast today. <laughs>